Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Genesis chapter 24. And uh, my intention really wasn't to start a series along this line until last week I was doing some studying for Sunday morning that kind of went a different direction anyway. Uh, But we'll see if I can't get back to that this coming Sunday morning. But while doing that, starting laying something on my heart perhaps. And uh, tonight I'm going to be not shooting necessarily with a shotgun that splatters and can hit a lot of people. It might be more honed in on a group of people. Last Wednesday was a little bit like that, more grouped in on a a group of people uh, to find uh, something sometimes to preach or minister about that touch each and every segment and age spectrum of society that's represented is a task within itself. And there's reason then why sometimes sermons or lessons that go forth hit a certain spectrum of age, another spectrum of age, because all of God's body needs ministered to. And uh, so I hope that each of us, whenever that might not be directly to us, we're still leaning in, we're still acknowledging God's words true uh, for whoever it is. And with that being said tonight, my, I'm, I'm, my, this evening I'm probably going to be shooting more, more toward an area of, of singles, singles. Now we say, well, that could be singles of people who have never been married, people have been married before but are single now. Uh, but we're going to be shooting towards that, that, that direction uh, this evening in Genesis 24. I'm just going to ask you to put your finger right there, and we're going to pray, and I'm going to let you be seated, all right? So uh, let's pray together that God would help us. My subject matter for tonight will be this, criteria for finding a mate. Criteria for finding a mate. Lord Jesus, we come to you right now. We need you, Lord Jesus, in this place. I'm praying, O Lord God, your word is forever settled, and it is true. I pray, O Lord, this evening that you're able to help us, God, as we... Look directly, Lord, at your word and, God, that it can give us principles and precepts, God, for life. I pray, O Lord Jesus, minister, Lord, to this group and this body of people and believers. I pray, O Lord, that you would help them, touch them, strengthen us, Lord, by your word. And, God, let it be, Lord Jesus, life unto us, God, and whoever, God, this may or may not, Lord Jesus, necessarily, Lord God, apply to that we all would lean in and, Lord, receive word from heaven tonight, God, to perhaps share even, God, with other people we come in contact with in our everyday lives. In the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Everybody say amen. 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 Honestly, it, I uh, planned on, you may be seated, I planned on starting a series on the book of Ephesians, but uh, uh, here we are, all right? So here we are, uh, criteria for finding a mate. I do encourage you to come Sunday morning. Sunday morning, I'm going to try to start something called Marriage Matters. This coming Sunday morning, now maybe some of you won't come. I don't know. That's one of, Bishop always had the way of getting away to start. He'd start announcing sometimes on Sunday morning what he's going to do Sunday night or so and so forth. And uh, I see positive and negative aspects to that. And we'll just see which one this was uh, this evening. Criteria for finding a mate. This is part number one. This might take me just a little bit over the next few Wednesdays to do. Amen. Uh, I think even represented, I kind of sat up here on the platform tonight and started taking my own personal survey of the number of singles that we had uh, with us, whether they were uh, never been married before or perhaps had been and are now uh, presently single. I really was thinking about Sister Nellie Breeden when I was putting all this together. And uh, Danny Boy, actually. No, actually, I just thought about that while I sat up here and I happened to see her face. <clears throat> but nevertheless, I, I hope we can have some fun along the way on Wednesdays and Sunday mornings here in the next few weeks. Uh, but I think, I think it's important, you know, uh, criteria for finding a mate. Uh, you know, a lot of times we think there are certain elements in life that the Bible is, uh, uh, doesn't speak upon for us in our lives but I find quite the contrary that many times various areas of our life that the Bible is right on and a very great tool 
for aiding us and guiding us. And concerning this subject matter, I believe it is, it is no less also a very, very great tool. And whenever you begin to consider, at least uh, people who do statistics say, being that only really 10% of people remain single, with that in mind then that 90% do end up getting married or find a mate, then I think it's important to take some time and consider then uh, what, what must be some of the criteria then for finding a mate. I mean, if 90% of the represented body here is going to get married or so on and so forth and find a mate, I think it's important to look at that. I'd like to go to Proverbs chapter number 12 and verse number 4. We'll get to Genesis 24. We'll be there for several weeks. So just put your finger there. Let it make an imprint on your Bible. Maybe we'll put God said on your finger. I don't know. Uh, but the Bible says, A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. But she that maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. Now, I want you to understand tonight, I'm not starting off some wild tangent here and going to become some male chauvinist that's just going to just concentrate all upon the woman side and not the man side. I'm just reading from the Bible, from Proverbs. It just so happens that the book of Proverbs is written for the most part of a perspective from a father admonishing his son, even his mother admonishing the son. So with that being said, they many times concentrate upon the female gender who the son is going to uh, join himself with. But in Proverbs, leave that up there if you will, Sister McGee, Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 4, in that I believe is a very profitable principle that is applicable for both sexes, both the male and the female. And this is a statement I've said before, but I desire to lead with it tonight. And that is your spouse or your mate will either be an asset or a liability to you. Whenever it comes to relationship, whether it be something that is in its infancy or whether it be something all the way to marriage, uh, that other individual, that significant other, if you will, will not be able to hold a middle ground of influence in your life. Here in Scripture, he speaks of both the asset and the liability for this notion, woman is servant. She's either a crown to her husband, that crowning glory, that thing that distinguishes him from just the ordinary man, or she is, she maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. I mean, she's a, she causes decay and deterioration in his life. But in essence, male or female, we're talking about starting or finding a relationship. When you're looking, finding, looking for a mate, they are and will be either a liability or an asset in your life. And what you want and desire is that they would be more of an asset than they will be a liability. Amen. Because it could go both ways. For that matter, in a formed relationship with any individual, if we'd even speak outside of the scope of Love, whether it friends, they will take the, the position of either an asset or a liability in your life. They'll either enrich it and bring more value and worth to you as a person, or they'll do quite the opposite. They'll subtract from you, demoralize you. And so it is with our mates or potential mates. Genesis 24 Genesis 20, you want some homework, take some time between now and next week and just read Genesis 24. I don't know if your Bible is like mine, but this particular Bible I have kind of breaks up Scripture in sections and it has headings that are above them. And for this particular chapter starting, it calls it a search for a wife for Isaac. In other words, it was a search for a potential mate. Something that's interesting to me tonight is that Genesis 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. And yet, Bishop, it is devoted to the process of finding a wife for Isaac or finding a mate. I think that's significant, personally. I think that's important because it is longer than any of the chapters that concern creation. 
It is longer than any of the chapters that concern Noah and the flood, although there might be multiple. It, it brought it all together in its entirety because I believe it is important. This process is important of finding a mate. It's very, very critical. And I think it shares with us some, some significant criteria, if you will, for finding a mate. Here in Genesis 24, Abraham is at the age of about 140 years old. 140 years old, because the Bible tells us that Isaac was 40 years old uh, whenever he took Rebekah to be his wife, and Abraham was 100 years old whenever Isaac was born. So here we are, Isaac's about ready to find his wife at 40 years, and uh, Abraham was 100 years old whenever Isaac was born, so Abraham's around 140 years old. The Bible talks about Abraham and this is interesting. It's kind of disheartening for all the elders, but he's spoken of as being old and well stricken in years at 140 years old. Now what's interesting about that, just as a side note, whenever he was about ready to have Isaac at 100 years old, he was considered old and well stricken in years. And come to find out, whenever he finally dies at 175 years old, they're still calling him old, so I really don't know what that says. You interpret that one. You interpret that one. So he's old. He, he's stricken in years. Uh, he will die. Abraham is looking through the lens that he, is, he doesn't know how much life he has left. He doesn't know when he's going to die. Uh, he's not looking at the Bible as we are, and we already see the 175, his death. But right from that 140-year mark, he has about 35 years left uh, in his life. Uh, his wife... Uh, Sarah has already been dead for about three years. She's already been gone and dead for about three years. And no doubt Abraham is starting to think, my wife has passed. Uh, you know, I don't know how much more life I got in me. I mean, we had children at a late age. <laughs> uh, you know, could you imagine? I've thought sometimes having children at the age I had children at, thinking about how old they're going to be when they want to play basketball and do all these other things. And thought, my goodness, we should have started this earlier. I couldn't imagine poor, poor Abraham, 100 years old. Go long, son. And it dropped by his feet, you know. But here he, here he is. He's no doubt starting to think about the end of his life. And I think it's important to know, the Bible says, Abraham, in recounting these things, it, it, it says particularly in, in verse, and if I can get it here before me, the Bible says in one of the verses of, of here, of Genesis chapter number 24, it's verse number one, that the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. God, God had done so much for Abraham and had has enriched his life and seemingly brought to pass many things in Abraham's life. But now here at this segment, unbeknownst to Abraham, 35 years removed from his death, although he may think it is closer. Abraham's greatest concern right now at this moment is for his son to have a proper mate. Bishop, I think that is noteworthy of a parent, particularly a parent of his age or of any age for that matter, that a great concern, I mean, he's already lived a lot of life and he might not have much more living to do, but his great concern right now at this moment is that his child would have a proper mate. I believe that's a commendable thing and might I even say that's a needful thing. Among parents, society, and the church particularly today, that a great concern of your parental life should be that your sons and daughters find, attach themselves to a proper mate. And so, you know, we're dealing with, you know, a cultural difference, of course, between then and now. Uh, then uh, parents kind of secured that mate for their children. In this instance, Abraham's so old, he's going to have his eldest servant uh, which if we go back at one time his eldest servant was Eleazar, I still believe that this was Eleazar that he was speaking to, he was going to have his eldest servant go forth and do some of the seeking out, if you will, for a mate for his child. But regardless of who's doing the seeking, there was criteria. 
whether it was the parents or whether it was the elder servant that it was given to, there was criteria that was given to them. As a matter of fact, before Eleazar, this eldest servant would leave, Abraham had him make an oath. He had him swear unto Abraham. And this is what he said, starting with verse number 3 now of Genesis 24. I didn't start my stop clock, so we might, I don't know when this is going to end. Amen. But in verse number 3, the Bible says, and I will make thee, this is Abraham speaking, I'm speaking to Eleazar, the elder servant, I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. Now, I'm just speaking along lines that I think we need to visit every once in a while. The first, the first qualifier that Abraham gave unto Eleazar for finding a mate for his son Isaac was this, verse 3. Thou shalt, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites. His number one, look, if, if, I don't know if these were in a list of priority. I don't know that, but he placed a lot of emphasis here, and so I am tonight. He said in, in, in modern layman terms, do not date or marry an unbeliever. We spoke about this. We talked about this many times. But he was basically saying, don't give my son a wife from the Canaanites. He says, we live right now. We've come to what God told us to come to, the promise of Canaan. We live here. They are all around us. But God doesn't want you to be married to one of them. The reason be the Canaanites, those people, he told them. There's a reason why whenever they were to inherit later the land of Canaan, they were to drive out the inhabitants and push them aside because they understood the effect and impact it would have upon the people of God because Canaanites were pagan, pagan, idolatrous people. By nature, that's who they were. They served a multiplicity of gods. They served gods of wood. They had idols that they kneeled down and worshipped. He says, we dwell among them, Isaac, but I do not want Isaac to be married to them. Why? Don't you want Isaac being married to a Canaanite who is pagan in practice, who kneels down and serves idols? Because if he will marry a Canaanitish woman, then they probably are not going to be true to the God of heaven. Amen. In other words, Abraham was admonishing Eleazar, I do not endorse what society now is called missionary dating. Amen. And, and, and folks, this is... I'm, I'm speaking the realm of this. Listen right now, as whether we've never been married, if we've been married before and are single now. Amen. In all aspects. If he said, you go get him a wife from my country and kindred, in other words, get him a mate from my people who will be serving our same God. Now I want to qualify this because I did some thinking and things along these lines. In Acts chapter number 7, the Bible reports the story of Stephen and Stephen is recounting the history of the children of Israel prior to him ever being stoned. And he's given a recollection how God had already spoke unto Abram whenever he was in Ur of Chaldees, his homeland, his origin, had spoke to him to leave. And so we see Abram and, and we see Lot and we see Haran and, and we see Terah, his father. We see this whole family that is uprooting from Ur of Chaldees and they separated themselves from that origin, from that heathen, idolatrous land of Ur of Chaldees and they go to Haran, which wasn't all of the distance to Canaan, but it was a good 730 miles. Now that's more than here to Chattanooga. 730 miles to Haran they went, so they separated themselves quite a distance, 
And whenever Abraham tells him go back to his kindred and country, we find out later in verse number 10, Nahor, where he wants this servant to go, isn't Ur of Chaldees, but it is that Haran, that place that they had separated themselves to. So he's going back to a people who had separated themselves. Not only that, Abraham is learning from other people's mistakes. There's nothing wrong with that. Because Lot, Abraham's nephew, had children before Abraham did. And Abraham learned from Lot's mistakes. Because when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's son-in-laws, who were of Sodom and Gomorrah, would not leave the city. They would not lead the city of perversion and wickedness. They, although the plea was made, they would not leave the city even though they were given opportunity to. Someone say amen. amen. These were men who were all a part of wickedness and perverseness, but Lot went to that city with his daughters. They took them as spouses. Now God's calling them out of this place, trying to get them up out of there because the destruction's going to fall. And guess what? These people that they joined themselves to was willing to stay. Rather than follow the true God, they were willing to stay in the perverseness and the wickedness of the city. They were not, if we could say, in the church most likely steeped in pagan religion. Abraham says, they didn't go when God said go. Said, yeah, Lot's, Lot's daughters found a mate. But whenever God said go, they didn't go. So Abraham, Abraham, he tells his eldest servant, I hope you're following along with me in Genesis 24. Abraham tells his eldest servant, he says, go back to Nahor, which was Haran because Abraham had some remaining family there that had separated themselves. Now, I want you to understand, they separated themselves from the fountainhead of idolatry, which was Ur of the Chaldees. Look now, for at least they had been separated, that, separated from that for at least 65 years. Because Abram, in Genesis 11, was 75 years old when he left Haran. At least 75 years old. You can read it in Scripture in Genesis Amen. He was 75 years old whenever he left Haran, and now he's 140 years old. That's a 65-year difference. So these people had come out of your Chaldees and had been separated from that for 65 years. He's saying, servant, go back there. They have lived a life of separation for 65 years. The old ways and old practices are no longer a part of their life. If you get one from there, they're going to be people that's revering the things that be of God. And look at Genesis 24 and verse 10. And the servant took ten camels of his master and departed, for all the goods of his master were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia unto the city of Nahor, which we know as Haran. Look now. Eleazar, this is important, had to go quite a distance. How many miles was it? from Canaan to Nahor, or if you will, literally Haran. 400 plus miles. He had to go a great distance, listen, to find a spiritually inclined mate for Isaac rather than to settle for the convenient incompatible that was all around him. I voice this tonight that sometimes finding a mate that is in, in, in conjunction with the will and the purpose of God may require you going just a little further. And I'm not talking about literal distance. I'm saying it might require just a little bit more, a little bit more tenacity. Amen. Amen. Uh, uh, maybe it might take years more to wait. But it might take going the extra distance in order to get there. Because to marry a Canaanite would have been the easy way. To marry the Canaanite would have been the easy route because they're all around Abraham's family. They're all around and there's a lot of them. Amen. 
But he said, you got to go the extra distance. See, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if I need to disclaim this sermon this evening, but one of the reasons why I'm teaching this is because our church over the history of the church has lost several young people due to this very thing. And it's not because it wasn't taught about, it wasn't preached about, or it wasn't talked about. But, folks, this is more than just a subject we bring up once in the lifetime of a church and never hit on again. It needs to be addressed as a consistent subject matter. Amen. Because there's going to be new, new young people that arise. Or there's going to be new people that fall in and out of the mode of singleness that's going to need some criteria for finding a mate. And what I'm delivering you tonight is not my personal opinion. I'm using a biblical basis here this evening. If you will look at Genesis 26, I want to point out some other instances in Scripture. Genesis 26 and verse number 34 through 35. Now, uh, notice here, the Bible says Esau. Here is Esau. He's, he's, excuse me, the son, if you will, of Isaac and Rebekah. Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife. Man, that should be a comfort to some people right there. Amen. He was 40 years old when he took comfort, when he, when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elam, the Hittite. Now look, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. See, the Hittites, these were two Hittite women. The Hittites were in the land of Canaan, right alongside the Canaanites. And the Hittite people opposed the Israelites and opposed God just as much as the Canaanites did. And in verse 35 we read that these unions of Esau to these two ladies who were Hittites grieved the mind of Isaac and Rebekah, his parents. Why? It was because Esau brought women in his life that did not serve and revere the Lord his God. Now, if you go a little further in the story, so Esau already has uh, these two Hittite women. It grieves, uh, it grieves his parents. But in Genesis 27 and verse number 26, I have a lot of scripture. We're going to read all of it, and I am in no hurry. <laughs> Sister Craig, God bless her. Genesis 27 and verse 46. The Bible says, And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heath. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heath, and the daughters of Heath were Hittite females. All right? He says, If Jacob, listen now, take a wife of the daughters of Heath, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, which were Canaanites, what good shall my life do me? What good shall my life do me? She's saying these are the, daughter, these are the daughters of Heath. They're Cain, they are Hittite females. Esau has already joined him to some, some, some uh, uh, Hittite females. We were grieved in our heart and our mind because of that. And here she's saying the Canaanite women are no different. If he would have married the Canaanites, we would be grieved in our mind, in our heart for that. And so, Rebecca making her plea to her husband, what's he do? He pulls up his pants as the man of the house. And he goes, talks to the boy. Yeah. In the very next verse, in Genesis 28 and verses 1 and 2, he pulls up his pants. You know, you, men need to pay attention to their wife's inclinations. I'm serious on that. I'm not just, it's not her being bossy. It's not none of that. God's made her in such a way that she can pick up on things that you'll never pick up on with it being in bold letters right before your face. I'm just being dead serious. You need to pay attention to her wife, to her inclinations. God put her there as a help meet for a reason. Because sometimes you're going to need some help. So he says, all right, honey. <laughs> I'll get the boy. He goes, get the boy. What does he say? And Isaac called Jacob, Genesis 28, verse 1, and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, we've heard this before, thou, that is from Abraham, and thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. 
Arise and go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. Look at the charge in verse number one. Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Cut, clear, delivered. Walk with me here. Skip down to verse number five of the same chapter. And the Bible says, And Isaac sent away Jacob, and he went to Padanaram unto Laban, son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. And when Esau, listen now, when Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, see, while Isaac was addressing Jacob, unbeknownst to them, there was a third-party audience that was taking all this in. Esau. And when Esau had saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Pandanaram to take him away from thence, that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, he's hearing, listen, he's hearing what, what, what Isaac is telling Jacob, saying, thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Mm. Let me go on now, I don't want to get him. And verse 7, and that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Pandanaram. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father. Then went Esau unto Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of uh, Nebajoth, or Nebajoth, to be his wife. There's something very troubling to me, ladies and gentlemen, about this whole scenario right here. Isaac is speaking to Jacob. Esau is seemingly eavesdropping on all this, hearing this, seeing this, but he is witnessing this charge to Jacob how he is not to take any Canaanite women as though it has never previously been taught in his family. Someone hear me right now? Verse number 8, he said, And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, almost as though this was the first he had heard of it or known of it. Now, I might not be going the path that some of you may think that I'm going. Didn't even know that it would be inconsistent with the will of God or unsatisfactory to the parents. I said all this to go to the parents here for a moment. And tell us as parents that we need to take our God-given role in the admonition of our date-age children as to what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable in the eyes of God and Scripture. The Scripture is silent. And it never tells us, it never, it's silent, it never tells us that, that, that Isaac had spoken this before to Esau or to Jacob. Nothing is never said that, that Isaac and Rebekah told Esau, hey, we didn't care much for you taking those Hittite women. Nothing is said that they ever raised their voice for the matter concerning a disapproval. And now here's Esau, wow, this, that, this is not pleasing to that. Let me tell you, the time to voice that is before rather than after the union has taken place the flirtation has taken place the first date has taken place and if you're beyond the years of a mom and dad hopefully you've been taught that somewhere in this section of your life if not consult scripture Amen. And before, before you endeavor in a relationship, you need to ask yourself, in a figurative sense, is this a Canaanite or a Hittite? Or is this an Israelite? Talking about criteria for finding a mate. Look at this. Yeah, this is really sad. As a matter of fact, if you do a little study, you can almost deduce that Jacob and Esau, they're twins now, okay? Jacob and Esau was somewhere around the age of 77. 
You hearing me? Whenever Jacob goes to Pandanaram, 77, when he's hearing this news from his dad, and when Esau is spying in on it and hearing it what seems to be like the very first time. If that would be the case, ladies and gentlemen, a little late in life, just a little late in life, telling your son about not taking a wife of the Canaanites. Esau married the Hittite women at age 40. This is 35 or so years, 37 rather, 37 years later. Someone say amen. The best mode of the church in of our individual's lives is about certain things that come across the plate. We need to be proactive rather than reactive. Oftentimes we're reactive. It happens, we react. Now we're going to tell you. We need to be proactive. Amen. Because proactive may keep it from happening. Be proactive. See the dust in the horizon and say, oh, we need to talk about something. Amen. Hallelujah. Look at, look at verse number nine. So, so Esau, then when Esau, he seen that these daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac. He heard his daddy say it, even himself. And then went Esau unto Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had. Went unto Ishmael. There's two ways, really. Esau takes seemingly this withheld information and you can almost look at it two different ways whenever I looked at it today. You need to look that Esau is spitefully reacting out of rebellion and say, if that's not what he's like, I'll give him more what he don't like. He thought marrying the Hittites was something. Wait till I go to Ishmael and we crowse around. Wait till I bring this one home. <laughs> By marrying more women who weren't believers in the one true God. Or you can see that Esau seemed to be the one that was the less favored son in many instances. Maybe he thought he seen Ishmael as being the son of Abraham. He thought, well, his daughters, maybe I can get him back good graces with the Lord, but you will never do that by by marrying the offspring of an Ishmaelite because Ishmael was a son of compromise anyway. Ishmael was the product. His mother was Hagar, who was a handmaiden that was, came from Egypt. And she joined with Abraham, the father of promise. But a result of that was a son of compromise. So you can't even go get something that's half a half-breed when you're concerning truth and come out with purity in the end. Criteria finding a mate. I know some of you just going along for the ride with me, and I really appreciate that. Some of you tonight, you're saying this. Talk to somebody else. Please do not absent yourself on Wednesday nights for the next few weeks because of this. I need you here. I need your voice of affirmation. All right? Whether you walked that road and things turned out different, although you started out wrong, you ended right. Amen? You know what's interesting to me, Bishop? The destinies of Jacob and Esau are vastly different. Jacob is the inheritor of the promise of God. Esau, which the Bible says is Edom, that's what the scripture says, is seen as constantly troubling the children of Israel against the children of Israel even until this day. Mm-hmm. You want to trace the, 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 the descendants of the Middle Easterner people? You trace them all the way back to Esau. Now, I'm, I'm breaking things and messing things up here. Fix that before Bishop gets on to me. And, and I don't, I don't want to draw, draw bold, thick lines, but while all this may not be directly linked to who they married, in my opinion, it is a definite factor to be considered. Look at another. Oh, I want to give you several scriptures. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to think that I'm just some dangling participle out here. When the children of Israel were on the verge of taking the land of Canaan, there were some instructions that came from the Lord 
to Moses that Moses delivered unto the people, Deuteronomy 7 and verse number 1 through 4. The Bible says, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whether thou goest to possess it, and have cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Jergashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Oh, we're eating it. Seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And verse 2, And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them from before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. I alluded to this earlier. Thou shalt make no covenant with them. Marriage is a covenant. Um, and, and, and with them, nor shew mercy unto them. Verse 3, it emphasizes that. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. Look at verse 4. For they will. Everybody say will. That's not a maybe. That's not a perchance. That is, they will turn away thy son from following me that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. Thank goodness he still doesn't do that. But the problem clearly stated here was marrying outside of the people of God. Marrying outside of the church. Doing so, he says, this is the reason why I don't want you to do this. Because this is going to make you turn away from God. And God doesn't like competition with nobody. Even if she is not dead or he is a hunk. <laughs> Amen. So I ask us the question, and I've already shared something with you that God shared with me several months ago, and I didn't know when it was ever going to be able to be shared, shared here. How adamant, I ask myself then, how adamant and unyielding is God about this unequally yoked thing? I want to share with you a story from Numbers chapter 25. Again, I'm just hitting the same nail for right now. There's a whole, there's a whole lot of other criteria besides the number one. We'll get maybe to the number two tonight as well. But, but oh, oh, I shouldn't have said that, huh? Numbers chapter 25 in verse number six. The Bible states these words. And I, I, need to, I need to set the atmosphere for this because what's taking place during this time, right now during this time, this is a time when Israel uh, was committing some whoredom with, with none other but the daughters of Moab. They were not people that served the one true God. And uh, the Israel was in a place that they were embracing some false gods, no doubt probably as a result of their whoredom of joining themselves to people of false gods. So they start embracing false gods and false practices. And the following just, just happens here in Numbers 25 and verse 6. <clears throat> the Bible says during all this happening and all this taking place, and behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman. Again, not one of the one true God false practices, false gods, in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the men of Israel into the tent. So you understand what's taking place. There's a man of Israel. People are taking Moabite women. They're serving false gods. So this guy says, hey, man, if they're getting Moabite women, why not go get a Midianitish woman? I kind of have my eye on one anyway. So this Israelite goes into the camp of the Midianites. He grabs himself a woman. He heads back among all of his people, the Israelites. He walks into his tent. Now, you didn't just take a woman into your tent. If something wasn't about ready to go down. I'm, I'm telling them, their custom times, you didn't just get. Yeah. And so he brought her in tent, and here's Phineas over here from a line of priests. A line of priests. He's already seeing all this woe going on, and he's had enough. He said, I'm going to make an example of this. And he gets up and grabs his javelin. He's not about ready to pick his teeth either. And the Bible, amen. And the Bible says, look at it now, in verse 8, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent, 
thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. There was a plague going on too because of this horrific deeds that they were doing. A plague had come upon them. They were being judged. And he goes on, he says, man, we got to get this thing over with. It's got to quit. So he pierces the Israelite man who went and got the Midianite woman and the Midianite woman through with a javelin. And verse 9 says, and those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. Now look now, look, look, look. Continuing, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, look at this, the Lord. Someone say the Lord. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel. While he was, he's zealous. Man, he's zealous about this thing. God's talking about this man that was zealous. Zealous for my sake among them, that I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Verse 12, wherefore, this is still the Lord speaking, wherefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. He's just pierced the Israelite and a Midianite woman through because they were doing a, an equal union and God says, give, him my, give that man who did that my covenant of peace. Furthermore, he says in 13, and he shall have it and his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting, everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. Do you understand what God's word is saying right there? God's word saying there was a priest in the land that whenever he seen a man taking a lady unequally into his tent, he took his spear, he drove them both through, took their life, and God stood up and said, I approve of that man's zeal. He'll have a covenant of everlasting peace and an everlasting priesthood. How adamant and unyielding is God toward this type of thing? That's how adamant, that's how unyielding. And there's no one being pierced through today, but understand, he's adamant about this. So zealous over, over Israel. Nobody else moved, but Fina said, I'm moving. Took care of business. Zealous act. He had a firm stand. It was the key to stopping this thing from continuing and overtaking. Because let me tell you this. If we just keep our silence, it'll be one and then it'll be three. And it'll be three and then it'll be five. And then it'll be nothing but a custom around here that that's what we do too. We look for our spouses in Canaan and, and we say a prayer and tie a knot and cross our fingers and toes if we never say anything about it. But every once in a while, God, lo and behold, it's me this week that there's got to be a priest that stands up and say, hey, listen here. We're going to have to do what we need to do because this plague, and it's a plague in today's society and in the church, this plague's got to stop. You cannot have my single people. You cannot have my single young people. Too many have went down that path. I'm going to be zealous for the Lord my God. So Phoenix is honored by God with a covenant of peace, everlasting priesthood throughout, throughout, his, throughout his generation. How am I doing? I'm doing okay. Genesis 24. Back to Genesis 24. We're still, in that, we're still in that chapter. Genesis 24, verse number 8. Abraham speaking to the eldest servant. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be cleared from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. Someone say amen. In verse 5, we don't have it on the board, but 24 and 5, the servant asks, must I needs bring thy son again into the land from whence thou camest? In other words, if the woman be not willing to come, should I take the man, should I take the man back to thy land? In verse number six, he said, don't bring my boy back to the land. In verse eight, he says, don't bring the boy. Uh, he's quite emphatic here. He's quite repetitive. He does not want his boy to be taken back to the land. 
Number two, here we are. After all this time, number two. <laughs> Some of these will go quicker than others, okay. Number two criteria for finding a mate. And there may be people here that don't totally agree, agree with this, but number two, do not marry a person with an incompatible spiritual appetite or continue dating them after you learn this. I'm taking my time here, all right? Abraham didn't want his son to be taken back. Listen to me. Abraham didn't want his son to be taken back where he had received his call from God. Because God had a promise for he and his descendants. That promise was the land of Canaan for him and Abraham was saying this although the women this woman even may be of my people and even if she is willing to advance in her pursuit of where we were called from to where God's promise is if she isn't willing let me state it like this if that woman although she be of my people I'm not talking about Canaanites now and Hittites now. I'm talking about Israelites. I'm talking about people of God, people that serve and, and nurture and honor the Lord. said, although they're a person that honors God, if they're not willing to go from the place where we were called to where God is promising. Is someone understanding what I'm saying right now? He said, then don't worry about my oath. You just leave her where she's at. What he was saying was, my son Isaac cannot go back and ignore the call of God and the promise of God for his life over a mate. In other words, Abraham saying, Eleazar, I would rather see my son unmarried than stoop to a lesser calling or ignore the promise that God has ordained for his life. I believe in this, folks. I believe in this. I'm teaching this as your pastor. I believe in this. Before I ever got married to my wife, I knew I was supposed to evangelize. But I didn't know when. I clued her in on the idea that that's what I felt God was going to do in my life. Had the slightest idea when. You know, before we ever got married, I knew she didn't have a problem with that. And at that camp meeting in the year of 2000 when Kenny Carpenter was preaching and we weren't evangelizing yet and he came and he came to Sister McGee and I and he said, Brother McGee, he said, I want you to put your hand upon her head. And Don, I want you to put your hand upon his heart. And he says, Honey, wherever God would lead this man, help him to be the head of your house and you follow his heart and God will prosper your lives and your ministry. That can only happen when each mate is willing to go the distance that God has called the other mate. Because if you don't have it, it'll bring problems in your marriage. You hear this preacher right now. And I don't know if I'll need to edit this tape, but I don't know who all listens to this anyway. Who knows? It, it varies. Sometimes we have close to 500 people that get a sermon. Sometimes we have few, sometimes we have many. It's just like regular church. <laughs> That's comforting. But even our tenure of traveling, there was another couple that was on the road, wasn't on it long uh, after we got on it. An evangelist whose wife was never in sync with his ministry or the ministry that God had given them. She was, she was the one I'm not leaving my country was she apostolic yes was she feel the holy ghost yes did she believe in one true god yes 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 but she wasn't in sync with the ministry as a matter of fact in their travels and man word would travel i mean sometimes pastors 
ain't too, too shy about telling you about some disruptions or disturbance that they've had. And uh, she oftentimes would cause havoc and disturbance in their travels. She would find some reason why she couldn't be at church during the evening services. It was a constant thing, Sister Craig. They came off the road evangelizing. They started a home missions work. And eventually she would divorce him. Never in sync with the minister. The promise that God had. Mm-hmm. You better, criteria for finding a mate, you better, you better find out if they have a desire and a hunger to go as deep as you have a desire and hunger to go. Because there are various levels in the church. Some people's relationship, I ain't doubting they have a relationship with God, but it is shallow at best. So you better find out who you're yoking up with and see if their in-depthness in their spirituality is any way comparable to you. Because if not, it will cause problems. I know of a pastor right now that I spoke to, my wife and I, at General Conference. A man that we had spoke to, and, <clears throat> and uh, he was telling us right now he had he was encouraging his daughter to go away to a Christian college after having already attended a community college right there in their home area. And in essence, for this purpose, in order to broaden the scope of her man pool. Because she had been in relationship with a local man right there in the local church. And as a father, he seen the spiritual level and aptitude of his daughter and senses something definitely lesser about this young man. And the father's a little bit worried that she will enter a permanent relationship where the spiritual promise for her life might be skewed by the lack of ambition of this young man. That God would want to put her somewhere, use her in a certain place, go a certain depth that he wouldn't be willing to travel. And so as a father, he's encouraging, go to the Christian college. Yeah, she's still going to get educated, but also simply for the purpose that there's just another man pulled, that she might, her life might cross the path with another individual that has more of a concurrent purpose and promise. There's more things hanging on that mate to be than just having a spouse. Or just having a companion. Or just, can I be frank, or just having a good sex partner. Genesis 24 and verse 7. Abraham says, The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, which spake unto me, that swear unto me, saying, He says, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And he shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. You know what Abraham was relaying to that old servant, Eleazar? Eleazar, there's just too many things hinging on this marriage for us not to be cautious. There's too many things hinging on us for us not to be cautious. He says, we got to consider the other offspring that's going to be born from this union. God said, Abraham, your descent's going to be like the stars of the sky and the sands of the shore. You're going to have to marry somebody that wants children. He says, we've got to consider the other offspring that's going to be brought out of that. Not only that, whoever this is is going to be an inheritor of the land. They're going to be an inheritor. It's dependent upon this union. Can you all hang with me for a little bit more? I won't hurt your feelings. First Corinthians chapter 7, really, I, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm getting toward close. Getting, the key word is getting. That's Illinois talking, getting. First Corinthians 7, let me read verses 32 through 35. I'll try to read them all through, not try to take my time and pause every other syllable. But I would have you without carefulness. 
Apostle Paul says, he that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit, but she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, and that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. The scripture tells me that the unmarried individuals care, care for the things that be of the Lord. But after marriage happens, there is a tendency for a husband to seek to please his wife and for a wife to seek to please her husband. They will seek to please the other emotionally. They will seek to please the other physically. They will seek to please the other spiritually so in verse 35 Paul just comes to this conclusion here and if I can just say it in layman's terms uh, he's saying hey I'm saying I'm saying all this for y'all good (laughs) he says I'm saying this for your own good he says I'm not trying to deter anybody from getting married are you all right you 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 tracking along with me in verse 35 I'm not trying to deter anybody from getting married but I just want them to understand that, that, so that they won't have any distractions so they can attend unto the Lord without, without distraction. Listen now. You want to join yourself, even maybe eventually marry, someone that is spiritually compatible, someone listening, because if after marriage, hear me? If after marriage, people have a tendency to seek to please their spouse? If their spouse is not comparable in spiritual ambitions, that person just very well may cause a stalemate for what God wants in the other person's life. Mm-hmm. Amen. Let me, let me read this out of the Message Bible. The Message Bible is not a translation, okay? It is a paraphrase Bible. It is by no means a translation. But in 1 Corinthians chapter number 7, and it, I knew I had it marked. There's my little ribbon. Same verses, 32 through 35. I want you to live as free of complications as possible. I like that. When you're unmarried, you're free to concentrate on simply pleasing the Master. Marriage involves you in all the nuts and bolts of domestic life in wanting to please your spouse, leading to so many more demands of your attention. The time and energy that married people spend on caring for and nurturing each other, the unmarried can spend in becoming whole and holy instruments of God. I'm trying to be helpful and make it as easy as possible for you, not make things harder. All I want is for you to be able to develop a way of life in which you can spend plenty of time together with the master without a lot of distractions. You know, I'll get there in just a minute. Secondly, from this, I derive that our mate boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, whoever, should not become our idol. If you cannot be in a relationship with someone, if you cannot be in a relationship with someone without maintaining your relationship with God on an even plane, you better find somebody else to be with that you can love but still love God with the same intensity. Amen. In other words, your interest shouldn't be so consumed by the potential make that there isn't any interest left to devote to God. And this is why lastly, and I, am I coming too close? Yeah, I'm coming to close. You can even stand if it makes you feel better. 
Listen, because sometimes, you know, singleness has got the bad rap. Singleness has got the bad rap. If you're single, that's a, that's a place to loathe. If you're single, that's a, that's a despicable place. You should have a mate. You should be seeing somebody. You should be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And, and society has painted it, and I don't know if we've painted ourselves sometimes. Singleness is a curse from heaven. I'm serious. Yes. That singleness is just viewed many times as a passage to the married life. Hear me clearly. If 1 Corinthians 7 tells me that the unmarried attend unto the things that belong unto God, let me tell everybody that's single in this place what you need to be doing in your single time. You need to be taking advantage of that time, honing your relationship with God with no distractions, nothing else begging for your time or your attention, and you're growing spiritually while you're trying to hone your relationship with God, and it's getting very sound, and it's getting very firm. You know what that's doing? That's preparing you for a mate so that when you do get a mate that needs some attention and time, you don't go to the opposite end of the spectrum and forget God. But boy, I'm single. I got a firm hand up on God, and now I'm capable of having a mate, and still being honorable and self-sacrificing unto God. Amen. So tonight, very simply, criteria for finding the mate qualifiers one and two is do not join yourself as a mate to an unbeliever and secondly, don't join yourself to a believer that has a differing ambition or aptitude spiritually. And we'll go from there. Genesis 24 is a teacher to us about these very things that we've just started here tonight. Parents, if you still have people to get married, maybe next time before dating age comes... Honey, why don't we do a Bible study in Genesis chapter 24? <laughs> yeah, that would fly like a bunch of pigs, wouldn't it? I don't know. I might try it on my daughter. Maybe if I got a chart, it'd make it more interesting or PowerPoint or something. Yeah. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads in this place. Thank you for being so diligent with me tonight. God, I come to you. This Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.